Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 14. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. This is really combined with chapter 13, where we left off at the end of chapter 12. Abram and Sarai had been in Egypt because of a famine. They have left Egypt and have returned to the promised land. And we're told in chapter 13 that his nephew Lot has gone with him. And the main thing that happens in 13 is that Abram and Lot have separated. They had so many people, so many herds and flocks, there was conflict, and Lot chose to go live by Sodom at the very edge of the promised land. And then we come to these words in chapter 14. There are a whole lot of names in here. I have practiced them, I promise. Some of you are far better at languages than I am, and so if you think, you know, Pastor Nick, you mispronounced that, I don't know, you might be right. We're going to happily anglicize most of these. Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaver, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakirathaim, and the Horites in their hill country, in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, 
the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God, most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let's honor Eshcol and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Revelation 5, verses 1 through 10. One of the keys to reading Genesis is remembering that it is part of a much bigger story of the Bible, a story that heads toward the book of Revelation, that Genesis and Revelation together give the context for the whole story of Israel. And so what we just read in Genesis is headed toward, directed toward these words. Revelation 5, verses 1 through 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, for the vividness of your word and the many ways in which you speak to us in and through it. It is our heart's longing and desire as we are together as your gathered church, that as we hear your word publicly read in our midst, as we hear your word proclaimed, that we might hear the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us. You have promised us that your word is powerful and effective, and yet we humbly acknowledge that it is not powerful 
because of our ability, our efforts. It is powerful as a free and sovereign gift as your Holy Spirit works among us. We pray then for your Holy Spirit's presence so that we might hear you speaking to us through your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have just heard, read from God's word, Genesis chapter 14, a story that very readily raises for us the question, what is the point? What was all of that? Now, we can quite easily home in on a point. The point to the story can be described something like this, and this is basically what we're going to be saying all morning together. God preserves his covenant people in the midst of the tumult of the nations. I'm going to say it one more time. We're going to be saying all sorts of names and details, and this is the thread you pull through all of it. God preserves his covenant people in the midst of the tumult of the nations. Okay. If the point is that simple, though, why did we need that whole story? Why all of the names? Why all of the places? Why all of the back and forth? It seems like the Bible could be a whole lot shorter, simpler, easier to understand if all it did was just say that point. There is what we might call an evangelical temptation to want to always reduce the stories of the Old Testament to something like a moral point. Look what Abram did. It was good. You do that too. Look what Abram did. It was bad. Don't do that. There is the Reformed temptation to want to reduce all the stories of the Bible to a theological point, a doctrinal point, what this says about God's sovereignty or something like that. And those also can be true things. We're going to say things like that this morning. But we must learn from the fact that the Bible does not come to us in huge swaths, huge portions of Scripture, does not come to us as moral instruction, and it does not come to us as doctrinal teaching. The great Reformed theologian Gerhardus Gerhardus Voss famously said this, the Bible is not a dogmatic handbook, meaning it's not a theology textbook, but a historical book full of dramatic interest. And his point is that we have to be sure to read it in a way that draws out that dramatic interest. It's meant to engage us. It's meant to draw us into what is happening. And our goal this morning is to read the story in such a way, not that we reduce it to a point and then set aside the story and we have the point instead, but that this historical account itself would be what speaks that message to us. That we would hear this drama, this history, these words, these events in particular speak that message to us. God gave us the scriptures in this form, and the form matters. So this morning, we turn to Genesis 14. We're anticipating a sort of a a hook, an entrance into it. This main message, God preserves his covenant people in the midst of the tumult of the nations. We're going to see this in three steps. It's going to be that same message repeatedly, but at different levels. So first, in the overview of the story. Second, in the details of the story. And then third, in the twist at the end of the story. One disclaimer up front. I... (laughs) 
I should have said this before the scripture reading, actually, because loads of us, when that was just read, are like, yes, we're doing Melchizedek. We're actually not doing Melchizedek this morning. So you may have noticed, actually, the way I gave you the text of the sermon, not the scripture reading, but the text, it skips verses 18 through 20. That is going to be our focus the Sunday after Thanksgiving. But we still need Melchizedek there as part of the movement of the story. So, first, the overview of the account. There were a whole bunch of names. It took a long time for me to sort out just what is going on here, and I never really got it until I had a map. So, we don't have a screen behind us, so I cannot project the map for you. I did not want to give this to you. It's far too much doodle space for the kids. So I'm going to try to give you a visual picture, which is what the text is doing. There's a reason the Bible doesn't give us maps. A visual picture of what is happening. Another disclaimer. I have a strangely vivid memory when I was like 10 years old. I remember asking someone at church, how does the minister have so much to say? Like, how does he do that? I was at the time thinking in my mind, what would it be like to go up there and give a sermon? Like, how do you come up with so much to say? And the person said, oh, it's easy. He spends like the whole time just retelling the story. Now, I'm about to retell the story. (laughs) But we're not doing this as filler. What are we trying to do? We're trying to get in what actually just happened. And so we are going to retell, but the goal here is to see the structure of the story. What, what, what is going on? What's the turning point? What's the hinge? What, what, what is the, 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 the sketch, the outline of what has happened? So here is the basic idea. There was an alliance of five kings from the east. Modern day Iraq, Assyria, or, uh, Assyria that, that area of um, the Middle East. Every time you hear a reference to Chedorlaomer, he was sort of the leader by the end of the story, he represented that alliance of five kings from the east. There were four kings, most likely based on the place names, to the south of the Dead Sea. That's when you hear Sodom, Gomorrah, this list. So you have where it begins. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam. Okay, there's five there. What they did is those five kings from the east had subdued the four kings from the south. We are told that, verse 3, all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer. So that alliance of five from the east subdued the four in the south, and the four in the south then were forced to serve the five from the east. So paying tribute, some sort of probably economic uh, subservience, But then we are told in verse 4, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So for 12 years they were subdued by the five kings from the east, but then they rebelled. Well, the five kings from the east weren't going to put up with that. So they returned to subdue those four kings in the south again. And then we're given a path. This is where things get really uh, distracting or confusing in verse 5, in the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated. Now, here's what's confusing. What's described here, so you can't see this. All right, I'm not even going to try. What's described here is they march south along the east side of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. And it's describing now place names as they march south. 
So it was those four kings down there that rebelled, but they're like, that's it. We're just going to go conquer everybody. So they march down and defeat the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Karnaim. That's up north. The Zuzim, they're working their way south. They come down to um, the Horites and their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran at the border of the wilderness. That's down all the way to the Red Sea. So they march south all the way down there. Then they cut northwest. What are they doing? Well, they're surrounding the four kings they're hoping to subdue. They're just taking out everyone all around the four. Then, having been surrounded, verse 8, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. That's the four kings of the south. Everyone around them has been defeated. Okay? They go out now to fight the five kings who are trying to subdue them, and they lose the battle. Notice the climactic moment in verse 9. So they go out, verse 8, they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, right there south of the Dead Sea, with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim. Okay, there's the, there's the five. Verse 10. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, like petroleum tar. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. Not the kings themselves. The king here represents the armies because Sodom is alive. The king is alive later. So the point is, the terrain was bad for them as they fled. The rest of them go to the hill country. Well, the, those five kings from the east then, having defeated them, they march north, and now they're on the west side of the river, and they go up north, and we're told they take with them, verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. They go, they're, 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 they're fleeing north then, going back, presumably, to head back home to the east. So they just conquered everyone around the four kings. The four kings come out and try to fight them. They are defeated, and now the five kings are going back home, and they're bringing with them Lot, whom they had captured. This is where Abram comes into the story. He's been in the middle of all of this, all this war and chaos. Verse 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anur, and these were allies of Abram. So Abram is told that Lot has been captured, and he has some friends, some allies around him. Verse 14, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, now, Here's why you need to spend all that time picturing what's happening. An alliance of five kings, now perhaps not massive armies, they could be relatively small, we don't know, but this alliance has successfully defeated everyone in the Transjordan that is east of the river, has defeated everyone south, has defeated everyone on the way to the alliance of four, has defeated them, and now is marching home victoriously. What does Abram do? When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. You're given a specific number. Why? Well, at least part of why is you've just been picturing the armies of five kings defeating everybody. And who is it now that's going to go up against them? Abram's 318. Now, the point is not that they are weak. Notice the emphasis, his trained men. 
He has an alliance. He has friends. Quite possibly, the, the best warriors of, of all of those groups that he's in alliance with are part of the 318 who are going up. So the point is not lack of skill, but there's still the sense that Abram is small. Remember, he's a sojourner. He's not from here. These are his new friends. He just moved here. And with this small force, they go. He uses tactics. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus. North of Damascus means he pushes them all the way out of the promised land. In fact, it's a place name that we actually don't know where that specific place is. We know where Damascus is, but Zobah, we don't know. The point is way out there, past Damascus. Abram successfully drives them out, and then he returns. Verse 16, he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram's 318, using whatever military tactics of dividing by night, are able to defeat the five kings and drive them out of the land. The king of Sodom comes out, verse 17, then we're interrupted, the king of Melchizedek comes out, or excuse me, Melchizedek, king of Salem comes out. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Verse 22, or excuse me, 21. Then Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. The point is, Abram, it's all yours now. You won, you want it all, it's yours. And Abram refuses it from him. And notice the reason he gives. I have promised God I would not take any of this. Why? Lest you should say I have made Abram rich. Abram refuses what the king of Sodom offers him. So, what did we say the point was? I hope you hear the point a little bit differently in terms of the drama that was just portrayed. God preserved his covenant people in the midst of the tumult of the nations. What is the story? Abram was told, go down, to that. this is the land I'm going to give you. And he goes into the land and he is surrounded by chaos. He is surrounded by war and death and bloodshed and violence. The, the, the horror of the wars that is happening, all of these cities being conquered, people being taken off as hostages, carted off to a foreign land, all of this should give us the sense of horrific drama. And that Abram, having been given all of these promises, is nevertheless seemingly small and weak in the midst of all of this tumult. And what does God do? What is the point that Melchizedek says? Blessed be God most high who's delivered your enemies into your hand. What is the point Abram says? King of Sodom, you have not made me rich. It is God alone who is doing this. Is that Abram caught up in the midst of all of that war, all of that bloodshed, all of that terror is protected is preserved. Well, brothers and sisters, this message stands here at the beginning of the story of God's covenant people, the beginning of the story of the call of Abram. And this story stands as a message of who God is and what God does and who his people are for their entire history until today. God subdues the nations to preserve his people. This is ultimately a promise of what God would do in our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the context of the story. That the context of the story is God has promised Abram that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, 
We're not so much seeing that blessing here, but what is the point? God is sovereign in bringing about that story in the midst of this, that God is going to defeat the nations in their rebellion against him and rebellion against the Christ. And so this ultimately points to the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ when he says, go make disciples of all nations, preserving his church, the mission of his church in the midst of the nations. And then he says to you, with this history, this story, that you too are preserved in the midst of the tumult of the nations. That God's people, as Revelation makes very clear, will always be surrounded until Christ returns. God's people will always be surrounded by tumult, upheaval, wars and rumors of wars, seeming chaos in the world around us. And this account now stands here to say to you, well, what does it say to you then? So you look around as a church and you say, man, honestly, it kind of looks the same as this. There's war and chaos and bad things happening and terror and bloodshed. And and God's people are so often caught up in the midst of it such that they look so weak and small. And then this message comes to us and says, yep, that's how it's always been. And yes, God preserves his people in the midst of it. As he did for Abram, so he does for his church and for the mission of his church. When the world around us is saying everything in a way like never before is bad. Everything in a way like never before is falling apart. Look how terrible it is. Look at the chaos. Look at the upheaval. The church is those who have the posture of saying, oh, there is nothing new under the sun. That this is always as it has been. This is what our sin unleashed. And we say to each other in the church, this is always how it has been. And God preserves his people in the midst of it. Remember the vividness of the five kings versus the four kings and everyone around being defeated and conquered by the five. And God, nevertheless, in that time of extreme darkness, preserved his covenant people in the midst of all of that war and bloodshed. And he does the same thing for his church of every time and place. As one writer says, The church, Christians, ought to be characterized as those who have an old soul. Those who have, in a sense, seen it all. Not because any individual one of us has, but because we are the part of the church of Jesus Christ that has lived through centuries of upheaval and tumult and turmoil. And we ought to have a posture, our reaction, our mode, our tone, our attitude in response to what is happening in the world ought to have that posture. God has always preserved his church. He has always preserved his people. He has always preserved his mission, his purpose in the world. And no amount of tumult, however fearful, can undo that. And what I'm praying is being set before us is that it is precisely the vividness of this particular account that adds to our confidence in that. That this is our story. This is our people. This is what God has done for us. What he has always done and what he will do. And we tell the story. We read it aloud to recount it. To say, remember what God has done for us in the past. And therefore be confident in what he will always do for us as his covenant people. God preserves his people in the midst of the tumult of the nations. Second, 
little deeper into the details. There were a lot of names. Okay, I was in some ways dreading having to read these and then dealing with, you know, those of you who are going to be telling me which ones I pronounced wrong. I was dreading this. Loads of names. Why? Names of kings, names of places, representing nations and groups of people, names where the account goes to great details to say, and so by the way, you know, to whom this was first being written, you don't know the place, but it's actually the place that's called this now, right? So all the times where it says that is this place in parentheses, making a big deal out of the placeness, the realness, where this is happening, and who it is involving, all of these nations, all of these names being included. And it's all done in a way that feels weird. I'm told I say the word weird too often. It feels weird. And whenever you encounter in Scripture what one writer calls the deep weird, pause. Don't skip over it. Right? It's there for a reason. So why the vividness? Why all of the places, all of the details? Why, I, hope, I hope you sensed already in a sort of our, our first point about God preserving his people, part of the vividness just adds to the climactic moment of God preserving Abram. It was emphasizing the power, the, the effectiveness of what the five kings from the east were doing, and that builds up to the point where then God preserves and protects Abram, and Abram is successful. All of that is true. There's another thing the details do all the names, is it tells you that all of those names, all of those details, all of those nations, all of those places are the arena, the place in which God is doing what he is doing. That all of those nations, the real world surrounding Abram is the arena in which God is acting. And there's something about the vividness of all that says, look, what God does in Abram with his covenant people is not just off in the spiritual realm. That what God is doing is not just about, you know, one day he's going to zap you out of earth to heaven instead and reject all of this. That all of these details are saying it's this stuff that matters. This earthy place, these places, these people, these nations matter in what God is doing. Now, theologically, that tells us something. That God is sovereign over all of this. That these nations, these kings, are within the story. They are not alien to, separate from what God is doing. They are within what God is doing. But it's more than that. What were we just told at the beginning of the story of Abram? Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Remember what we emphasized, that when chapter 12 began, what chapters came before that? Obviously, 1 through 11. And what were 1 through 11 about? All the nations, all the world. Abram was chosen from within all those nations for the sake of all of those nations. That all of these details, these place names, are preaching to us, announcing to us that this is the world God cares about. This is the world God's actions are happening in, and it's ultimately for the sake of that world. I say, I don't know, these, weren't these all just Israel's enemies? You know, some of these that were mentioned are going to be the bad guys in the future of the story of Israel. See, there were hints of blessing. King of Sodom, for example, benefited from this. His people were rescued. Melchizedek, he, he, is, he receives blessing in all of this, and his blessing Abraham, Abram 
he was told he would be blessed if he did that. So we see examples of blessing. But even the enemies were those whom Israel was meant to view as ultimately being the goal of what God was doing. God chose Abram from among all of those nations, ultimately for the sake of all of those nations, including their enemies. Later, when Israel would go into exile, God would tell Israel that even those nations who had subdued them, who had conquered them, who were part of their suffering throughout their history, were the goal of who God was going to be rescuing. One example, Isaiah 19, verses 23 through 25. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. Now, Egypt to Assyria, this is the whole span of this whole geography that was just described in this story. All the enemies, all the danger, all the nations are encompassed by that. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Isaiah says, the day is coming, Israel, when all of those nations that you are in the midst of, the goal is that they would be included with you and you would be as a third with them. As in, they all have equal portions, Jews and Gentiles, Israel and the nations, together as the one covenant people of God. And notice the vividness, the forcefulness of this language. Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Genesis 14 describes all of those nations anticipating that day, anticipating that Abram caught up in the midst of them was there for the sake of them. And God's plan all along was that through our Lord Jesus Christ, the true son of Abram, all of these nations would be rescued. Brothers and sisters, the very naming of all those names is the announcement of God's grace, who God is, his intention, his purpose for the world, that he always had in view the nations. Now, what does that say to you right now? It says a lot of things. It says this is the mission of the church. How much more is this not the case today? Having heard the announcement, go and make disciples of all nations, that we ought to relate to the nations, we ought to relate to the community, to those outside the church as being the reason we are here. They are not the bad guys who are the problem. They are the whole point. That God places his people in the midst of the world for the sake of the world. And that has always been the case. By all means, hear that as a challenge. But actually, rewind in the story though. This is why you are here. Because God always had you as the nations in view. At this point in the story... My ancestors in northern Europe hadn't even started worshiping trees yet. And they were then one day going to be rescued from that worship of trees, precisely because this was always God's intention. And here we are gathered from the nations as those whom God has rescued because of this being his plan and purpose. Or perhaps what you need even more than that. This is God's heart, God's character, God's nature, the very who God is being displayed, being announced. 
Abram, through you, all the nations will be blessed. All. God's goal has always been an all. The bigness of his grace. Make disciples of all nations. Reconciling all things to himself. For God so loved a small handful of people that he's going to you know, rescue while the west, rest of the world goes down. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. That the whole story, in drawing all these names, all these places, I don't want to read them again, but you remember how it felt. All those names and places drawn into it, the story includes them because God is going to rescue them and that's his heart for you. I've warned you many times how easy it is to turn the doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of God in salvation, to turn the doctrines of grace into the doctrines of God's stinginess. Like it must mean there's only a very small number and now I have to anxiously figure out, you know, do I make it even though God is so stingy? The story of the Bible is of the overflowing abundance of God's grace, the surprising character of his grace, and that all of this drama was happening because God's intention was for that grace to get to all of those nations. This is who God is for you. So when you personally have the doubts, the fears, the wondering, whether it be because of difficult providence, your own sinful heart, you must begin and end and all throughout right here. His grace, his promises, his love, his mercy, it being overflowing and abundant. And he says to you, simply look to him in faith. Third and finally, the twist at the end of the story. Being at verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, doesn't that sound so cool? Abram. So, we, so by the way, we could say, on the one hand, we must say, the wars described in this are absolutely horrific. Okay? What, what would it be like to be in a village, a town, and be conquered, and people carted off, right? It's horror. But we also must say, there's a heroicness to what Abram does. There is a victory that is exciting. There is even a kind of goodness to the wielding of the sword because of the curse, because of the darkness of the world, to what Abram did, what he and his allies did. There is a goodness to what they did in rescuing. And we must say both things. The horror of war, and all that being the arena in which God's grace is functioning right here, but also the excitingness, the heroicness, the fun of the story that Abram goes and defeats all of those kings and rescues those who were taken. So Abram comes back from the defeat victoriously. Verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, in the king's valley. So the king of Sodom comes out to meet him, and some people complain in the writing of the story, now we talk about Melchizedek. Well, where'd the king of Sodom go? And then the king of Sodom comes back again in verse 21. So here's why it goes this way. Verse 17, Sodom comes out, and the writer is, is like, okay, look, you need to realize just how um, not cool Sodom is being right now. Like, it's not good, the way he talks to Abram, and you need to hear it as being not good. So let me illustrate to you how we know it's not good. Look what Melchizedek does. He brings out bread and wine. He celebrates what Abram has done. There's an expression of gratitude, an expression of appreciation, of celebration. He announces blessing. He blesses God because of Abram. He blesses Abram. This, this is how you should be reacting to what God just did through Abram. Now, 
Let's go back to Sodom, the narrator says. Okay, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. The point in the drama is that he's being surly. He's being disrespectful to Abram. He's like, just give, you, you keep the stuff, I'll take the persons. Okay, well, that's alluding to what's going to be happening in the story. We know Sodom does not have a good future as the story goes on. It's being alluded to there. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Honor, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. He refuses to keep the spoils of victory. Abram has just, in effect, conquered at least a large part of the promised land. He could easily have concluded, you're right, this is all mine. Look, look what military power and alliances and working with Sodom just got me. God, you promised me the land. Look, I have all of this now. And he turns it down. Now, isn't this fascinating? This is what God had promised he would have. And yet he says, no, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. One writer says this, Abraham has been made rich by the power of the promise. He does not take and eat the fruit of war. By refusing, Abraham remains outside the economy of gift and tribute that links Lord to vassal. He remains indifferent to the social practices that define power and position. He is in the world, but not of it. The prototype of all the faithful who are strangers and exiles on the earth. And here he quotes Hebrews 11, speaking of what Abram knew. Abram knew this is not the way the kingdom comes. Abram knew this is not the way I receive what God has promised. That this whole story is driven by the word of promise, not by Abram's military ability, political skill. None of those things are the way the promise is fulfilled. Now remember, all of those things are portrayed as good. Abram's alliance here is not a problem. The military victory is something to be, in some ways, enjoyed, celebrated. Those things are good, but they are not the way Abram receives what was promised. Brothers and sisters, this hasn't changed. Hebrews 11 tells us that the faith of Abram is our faith. It is the model of our faith. It is the promise of our faith. It is the faith that we are invited to enter into as the nations of the world. And it is a faith that knew from the beginning it was never about the land. It was about the whole world, about the new creation to come, about a heavenly city, so that Abram knew he was a stranger in exile, even at that moment of having seemingly conquered the land that God promised him. He knew. As David would later say in Psalm 39, I am a sojourner, a guest with you, like all my fathers before me. They knew that the world as it is now, this side of the new creation, is not as it will one day be. It is not their home, their place of settledness, and that the power of this world, whether it be military or cultural or political, is not what the church grasps after to make things happen. It is not how the kingdom comes into the world. Abram's faith is our faith. 
Abram here says to us, remember who you are. Remember who you belong to. Remember where your identity is. That you are united to Christ, seated in the heavenly places, awaiting the day when heaven and earth will be joined together. The city not made with hands, coming down from heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, that God's presence filling the new creation. That is what you are defined by, characterized by, and living toward. And now you see how that connects with everything we've been saying thus far. And so we are preserved in the midst of the tumult of the nations but not grasping after the powers of the nations as the way we are preserved. It is God who does it by His grace. And we are preserved in the midst of that tumult for the sake of the nations. They are not the bad guys. They are our fellow human beings being rescued by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we live in the midst of that for the sake of that. This is one of the most important reasons even as we must say, and I hope I emphasized it enough, the horror of the war is described here and what it would have been like to live in the midst of them. We must say that and be clear. But we also are meant to enjoy the heroicness of Abram's victory because it is a promise of the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would be in the midst of the tumult of the nations, the great Roman Empire itself would put him to death. And it was precisely through that death on the cross that he would then conquer the nations for the sake of the nations. And that victory of Christ over sin and death and hell, you also are meant to enjoy. It's meant to strengthen, to encourage, to embolden. And so the account of Abram, what happens here, is an account meant to add to that, to add color to that, vividness to that, that what God did through Abram, he has done so so much more through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so much more, the church is safe and secure and God's mission will be victorious because Christ was victorious in precisely this way. Israel thought of the nations as being like a roaring sea. They were tempted, or not tempted, they were in danger of being consumed by. Psalm 46, right? Though the, the sea roars, it's threatening, it's dangerous. God tells us in the book of Revelation that in heaven, which defines the world right now, there is a sea, but it is like glass. Brothers and sisters, that is who you are. In terms of God's view of the world, in terms of what is ultimately happening, the sea has been calmed, and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask you to make us confident in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make us confident in your grace and love for us as your creatures and as your people in him. And help us then to live with peace, with faithfulness, with calm in the midst of the tumult of the nations. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.